Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant us to be so joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, June the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We've had a a good week this week, I think. We've been able to get out a lot. The weather hadn't been quite as hot. We went to uh, Chattanooga for a couple of days to help my brother move um, some stuff at my mother's house. He needed help moving the heavy furniture, and so... We ran over there real quick and did that, had a great time being with them, enjoyed the work, enjoyed being together and all that kind of stuff. Got to see my mom for a little bit, so she has moved into an assisted living facility about, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, a little less. And uh, it's the first time we've been able to see her since the funeral, actually. And so we <clears throat> we were able to spend a little bit of time with her and, and a good bit of time with my brother and his wife and uh, their daughter, and, and that's always fantastic. I love them. So we had a great weekend, and since we've been back, been kind of busy, had a lot to do, and so we're getting ready to go out of town for a few days. We're headed to Boston for a week, and looking forward to that. It's one of our favorite places, and somebody offered us uh, an opportunity to, to go up there, and they're just paying for the hotel. So we said, sure, absolutely, that sounds great. So we're going to be up there about six days, looking forward to being there, and um just doing some fun things while we're there. Um, one of the things we're going to do is is that I've got a friend from social media. I've never met her before, but she gives tours of the North End, which is where Paul Revere's house is, the uh, Old North Church, all that kind of stuff. But also now it's a big, It's it, there's a lot of great Italian food down there. And so what we're going to do is one day we're going to, she gives tours of these things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do the sort of progressive lunch thing. You go to multiple restaurants and you have, you know, a starter here and this here and that there and taste some wine somewhere. So it's going to, I'm really looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a good time and uh, there's no reason we shouldn't have a good time. So anyway, looking forward to that. Um, so it's been kind of a busy week getting ready for that and getting out and hiking and uh getting to the gym, getting to the chiropractor, <laughs> all that kind of stuff that you have to do when you're old, right? So anyway, that, that's been the week that we've had. It's been good. Um, so it's, it's been you know, not, not terribly hot over the weekend, thank goodness, and, uh, but it's been, it's been nice since we've been back. So anyway, getting ready to, to, to head out and have some fun. I'll go ahead and still do a, a sermon for next week. So every, all the daily ones are already done, and so I'll do a, a sermon before I go, probably, and then let, we'll see how it goes, and if I don't like it, I can do a new one when I get back. So anyway, today we're going to be, um, it, we're going to continue it's sort of the, the finish of the story of Elijah in some ways. It's from Second Kings 2, 1 to 2, and verses 6 to 14, and then um, in the gospel is going to be Luke 9, 51 to 62, and then in Galatians, we're going to read chapter 5, verse 1, and then skip forward to verses 13 to 25. So uh, Elijah is certainly one of my favorite people, and, and he is one of the most important people in all of Judaism. He is the one who they expect to return as the forerunner of Messiah, and that's the reason that Jesus has some conversation about that, and that, that John the Baptist is asked, are you Elijah? Jesus says Elijah has already come, and they rejected him, and so he is saying that John the Baptist was indeed the Elijah that people were waiting for, even though John said, no, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, and, and that's true, this expectation of him being the forerunner of Messiah comes from Malachi's prophecy when he says Elijah would return. So on Passover, every Jewish home leaves an empty seat for Elijah in case he happens to come back 
at that Passover, and the expectation is that he will come back at Passover. So, so the, he's an important figure in Jewish history. We know he's important because, well, he appears with Moses at the Transfiguration, representing the Law and the Prophets. So it, it, it's somebody that we need to pay attention to and that we need to know a good bit about. He, he was somebody who, um, during the time and the reign of, of Jezebel and Ahab, he was the one who tried to speak against that and called the Israelites, the northern kingdom, back to the Lord and, and had some success when he defeated the uh, prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. But, but he mostly did his work alone. And at the end, after Jezebel threatened him, as we saw last week, he believed himself to be the only one, the only faithful one left in Israel. And God had to correct him and say, no, actually, I have quite a few people that you don't know about that I have protected during this period of time. And so you're not alone, Elijah. And then God sends him back to go anoint a new king, to anoint a new commander of the army, and to anoint Elisha to take his place. So that's kind of where we are. He's done that. And now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, this is another important thing about Elijah, is that Elijah never saw death. And it's a measure of God's love for him. Even though he's decommissioned as a prophet and Elisha takes his place and he had his tantrum out there at Sinai, um, even in spite of all that, God's not going to allow him to see death. He's going to take him up in the whirlwind. Um, so Elijah is somebody God clearly cared very much about. And so they were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel, which is the house of the Lord is what that means. Bethel, house of the Lord. And so he's sending him there, he says. And, and what he really wants is just to get away by himself when he's going to be taken up in the whirlwind. He wants Elisha to leave him alone. So I, I thought, well, okay, let's see how far it is from Gilgal to Bethel. So I did what everybody ought to do, which is, all right, Google that. And what I found is it's 131 miles from Gilgal to Bethel. Eh, give or take. Um, it, it's 131 miles from Gilgal, South Carolina to Bethel, North Carolina is what I found out first on... <laughs> on Google, and then it's about a tenth of that distance. It's about 13 and a half miles from Gilgal to Bethel in the land where they are. So, But it was really funny. I mean, I just really got a kick out of that, that, that there's actually a Gilgal, South Carolina, and a Bethel, North Carolina, and neither one of them are too terribly far from me. So uh, I don't think that I'm likely to be taken up into a whirl, in a whirlwind. That just doesn't seem in the cards for me, let's say. So it's about 13 and a half miles, and he says, you stay here, I'm going to go on down to Bethel. But Elisha said, no, 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 as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they <laughs> went down to Bethel. And when they got down there, he says, you stay here, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. So he's going to Jordan, South Carolina. It's Jericho, actually, is where he's going. He's going to go to Jericho. You're going to see that in a minute. So I, I did the same deal, right? So I Googled that, too, and said, okay, how far is it from Bethel to Jericho? And the answer is, well, it's 73 miles from Bethel, North Carolina, to Jordan, South Carolina. So I don't even have to leave my state or the neighboring state where I used to live to, to go between Gilgal and Bethel and then Bethel back to Jericho. It's 73 miles there. Now, it's not quite as far if you're in the land. It's only 21 miles. So they've gone the 13 miles from Gilgal to Bethel, and they get there, and he said, no, you stay here. I'm going to go on down to Jericho. And, and Elisha says, nah, I'm not going to have any part of that. So he's going to go another 21 miles. He said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. 
So the two of them went on. And then this is such an irony here, because remember what I told you before is that Elijah believed that he was the only faithful person left in all of Israel, and yet when they get to Jericho, there's 50 men of the sons of the prophets. So it's not just these 50 guys, they're sons of the prophets, and so there's more than them. So these 50 men show up, and they stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Well, Elijah, do you see those dudes over there? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's 50 of the sons of the prophets that the Lord has saved. You're not nearly alone. I mean, and the good news is it's not sarcasm that's coming at him here. No, it should be incredibly comforting for him to look back and go, all right, I wasn't really alone, and Elisha is not going to be alone. It's, it's comforting to know there are these other men there. So they're standing there at the Jordan River, and Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water with it, and the water was parted to the one side and the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. I mean, they're sort of recreating the Exodus sort of in reverse. They're leaving the land, going across the Jordan, back out of the land for him to be taken up into this whirlwind, and so it, he does the same kind of thing they always have to do when they cross rivers. And Hebrews actually means river crossers. And so they crossed the crossed They crossed the Red Sea, they crossed the Jordan River, and now they're going back across the Jordan as Elijah is getting ready to be taken up into the whirlwind, but they cross over on dry ground. The Lord piles up the waters for them to cross over, and they go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, because he's given up trying to get him to stay behind, right? So he says, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. So what do you want me to do? What will be your sort of final request of me before I'm taken up? <clears throat> and Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So I want twice what you have. In spite of the fact that Elijah, Elijah is, the, like I said, the final representative of the prophets and who, who is to come back prior to Messiah. He's that important that he is given the responsibility and the joy of being the precursor for Messiah. And so he, Elisha said, I want twice of what you have. And so, amazingly enough, what we get in the story of Elisha is 28 miracles that Elisha does. We have exactly 14 miracles that Elijah did. And so God gave him this double portion. But Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you don't see me, it shall not be so. So the, the decider here ultimately is, do you see me taken up into heaven? If you do, then you're going to get that double portion. And it's going to be the proof for you that, that you are the chosen one to replace me. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. So they're, as they're walking along, suddenly these chariots and horses of fire come between the two of them. And Elijah went up into a, by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So what he's seeing is end times things. So Elijah will come back when it's time for this final battle, and that's their expectation, and then he saw him no more. He went up into heaven, and then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces, 
And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So he's on the other side of the Jordan. The 50 sons of the prophets are on, on the land side of the Jordan. And so now Elisha has to come back into the land after Elijah is taken away. So he took the cloak and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and the other, and Elisha went over. So, so where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He strikes the water with the cloak, just as his mentor Elijah had done, and exactly the same thing happens. The water is parted, just as it was when, when Joshua led the people into the land in this same place, just when he led them in, and the water parted and heaped up on each side. So it does now, and Elisha crosses over. So so if you're one of those 50 prophets there, you see this whole action. You see Elijah strike the water with the cloak, and the water parts, and they go across. And you don't know what conversation happened on the other side, but what you see next is Elisha doing the same action that his mentor Elijah did, and he is asking, is the Lord in this? And when he strikes it, you see that water roll back. And so now he is authenticated in the eyes of these 50 men who are sons of the prophets. They see that the, the, the mantle from God that was on Elijah has now been transferred to Elisha, and it's proven by the fact that he is able to do exactly the same thing to cross back over the Jordan that his mentor had been able to do. So it was not the cloak that had the power— it was in the prophet. So the prophet had the power that had been in Elijah, and now it's in Elisha. They just don't know at what level, but they, but it seems at this point at least remarkable that it's one for one. But little do they know that it's going to be even greater than that. And so, so what you get is Elijah trying to say, no, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, which had been the biggest problem that he had throughout his life was he served alone as a prophet. Elisha doesn't make the same mistake. Elisha brings together a company of prophets, just as Jesus brought together the 12 disciples, just as he brought together the 72. And when he sent them out, he sent them out how? Two by two. It's not good for man to be alone. That goes back all the way to Genesis 2. And so here we see Elijah, who had been alone all this time. Now Elisha is coming back, and he's going to gather a group of people. But Elijah had felt alone for much of his career, and here at the end, he wants to be alone, and Elisha refuses to allow that to happen. Now, what we don't see is when Elijah comes back, we've already skipped over this part, so when Elijah comes back from, from his audience with God out at Mount Horeb, he comes back and, and goes to Elijah, and Elisha, and he throws his mantle over him, and he's going to anoint him. And, and Elisha says, give me a minute, i got to go tell my mom and dad. And, and Elijah says, nope, what have I done to you? Nope, mm-mm. I'm going to go on. And and Elisha said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to slaughter the oxen that I have here. I'm going to break up the yoke that I have on them, and I'm going to offer them as sacrifices to the Lord. And why is that important? Well, it's important because of what we see here in the gospel. It's important to be able to say, nope, I'm leaving everything behind and I'm going to follow you, just like the disciples did, just like all of them did. All the fishermen that he called immediately left their nets and followed him, even when they had huge catch of fish, bigger than any they had ever had. They knew that it wasn't a coincidence that it was because of Jesus that they had that catch of fish, just like Matthew left his tax collection booth and followed after Jesus as soon as he called him. 
It's the way that we need to respond to the Lord. We need to respond by leaving everything else behind, which is proof that we know for a fact that Peter was right when he said, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And so they're chasing after the greater thing. They're making a value judgment and saying, I'm going after the greater thing. And so here, what we get with the gospel is when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And you know, it's funny, I looked at this this week and, and saw that passage, saw that sentence and thought, wow, wait a minute, we're just in Luke 9. What in the world? And so the next 10 chapters of Luke are basically him going to Jerusalem and the teachings that he does on his way. And so here we are, we're only nine chapters in, and remember the first two chapters are basically nativity stuff. The birth of Jesus and all that, chapter 3 is the the, um, baptism of Jesus, and and there's, there's not a lot of action that precedes this. Most of Luke's gospel, by far the majority of Luke's gospel, is consumed with Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. And so what does it mean when it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem? It means that he put everything else behind, and even though he knew what was going to be his fate once he got to Jerusalem, Jesus set his fate to, face to Jerusalem. He is headed there, and nothing is going to dissuade him from going there in the same way Paul did when he wanted to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost, in spite of the fact that everywhere he went, people said, it's not going to go well for you in Jerusalem, Paul. He refused to be dissuaded from going to Jerusalem. And so here we see this same thing with Jesus. He set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen when he got there. But he was determined, and nothing would deter him from going to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now remember in John 4, he's gone to a village of the Samaritans, and most of the time Jews avoided going through Samaria on their way to or from Jerusalem and back to Galilee. They took the long way around because they weren't particularly welcome there because, well, they didn't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans didn't like them. And the Samaritans particularly didn't like Jerusalem because they believed that that was not where you should worship. So they believed that was an abomination to the Lord. So anyone headed to Jerusalem was suspect. Now, when they came out the first time, they were coming from Jerusalem. And so they were leaving, so they were more welcome. Now they're headed to Jerusalem, and it's pilgrim festival time for Passover, and the Samaritans know it, so the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. They thought that he was an apostate. He was going to that place that God had never set up. They didn't believe that. And so they see him going there, and they say, you're not really welcome here because you're going on this pilgrim feast to Jerusalem. You should have taken the other route on the way there. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, what are they thinking about there? What event in Jewish history could they possibly be referring to? Sodom and Gomorrah. And why is that? Why would this have reminded them of that? Well, one of the things that the rabbis have taught forever and ever and ever is is that one of the reasons Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was because the lack of hospitality of the people there. As I've said a million times, hospitality is one of the highest virtues in the ancient Near East and particularly in Judaism. And so when they see these people, these Samaritans, being inhospitable, they're reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, why is that? Well, they already hate them. <laughs> That's part of the reason is, is they're just looking for a reason to, to rain down hellfire on them. 
And so here they say, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, it's just precious that you believe you can do that. There, there, there's a great story that I could tell alongside this, and maybe I'll, I'll try and do a little podcast about that later in the week um, that has to do with uh, an apocryphal story that's told by Jewish rabbis that's in the Talmud, actually. And it's a story about a rabbi who decides that, that he doesn't, that, that, he, that his way, his commitment to Torah and Torah study is the only way people can be and the only way people can serve the Lord. And so at that point, he becomes a danger because every time he looks at something with anger, he sets it on fire. And so I'll, I'll tell that and, and kind of give you some, some thoughts on that a little later because that was part of the reading for um, the Jewish world this week. And, and, but here, they, they, they're ready. John and James are, are really feeling it, right? They're full of it, and then they, they believe they can call down fire from heaven to consume them. So what is Jesus' response? He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What part of love your enemies did these guys think actually included calling down fire from heaven to destroy them? I mean, Jesus has taught this, and he's not only taught it, he's also lived it, and yet here, they consider these Samaritans their enemies at a level that says, hey, we're ready to destroy them. And it's cool because we have the power to call down fire from heaven. What is wrong with you guys? Come on. You missed all the teaching. You're still carrying these old grudges and nursing this stuff. And now, because they fail to show hospitality to us, you're ready to, to absolutely wipe them off the face of the earth and pull out another Sodom and Gomorrah. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, somebody said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is sort of the opposite of the health and wealth prosperity gospel, right? I'm going to follow you. Jesus says, count the cost. Look at my life. I don't have a house. I don't have any. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, well, maybe not. You know, and I, and I think that would actually be the response of a lot of people who respond to the health and wealth gospel, If you, which is not a gospel. It's a lie. But I think it would be the response of, of most people if, if you told them, actually, th- this is going to set you up for persecution, pain, and suffering, and you're not going to be popular if you have this. I mean, we've gotten so fat and happy in the United States that, that we have no room for the idea of any of that. And so when Jesus says, hey, this is not a bed of roses to follow me, this is not, you know, this is not a way to prosperity and popularity, well, the guy just... And never mind. <laughs> to another, he said, follow me. I mean, he gave this guy an opportunity, just like he did the rich young ruler who turned him down. Be- Why did he turn him down? Because he told him, you've got to sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. You've got to leave behind everything else, which is exactly what the disciples had done. Here, he calls this man, says, come follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, is that, you know, whatever... He's dead and he's gone. Now move on. Come on. Come and proclaim the kingdom of God. But mm, doesn't seem to have done that. And yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, you're still showing me that you think there's more important stuff than the kingdom of God. You got to go do this first. No, just come on. Just like... James and John, Peter and Andrew did, just like Matthew did. 
you got to leave everything else behind. And he says in multiple places, you know, unless you hate these other things, then you can't really love me. And, and it's largely because the most important thing has to be the kingdom of God. And Elisha saw that when he accepted the call that Elijah put on him. But we've got to make that same determination. And we have to make it all the time. Just because you, you have a good life now and you have a good place now doesn't mean that that same thing is going to be true tomorrow. God could call you out of what you're in today and, and call you into something else, right? I mean, it's always possible that God's going to call you. I talked to a guy today at the gym that I just met. He had been, uh, he went into the military after he graduated from um, high school and then became a medic while he was in, in uh, the service. And, and he really loved it. He loved medicine. He wanted to do that. And so at 30, that's exactly what he wanted to do. And, and so he, he said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. He said, the Lord stepped in front of him and said, um, no, that's not what I want you to do. Um, and he wanted him to go to seminary. And he was really kind of crushed, he said, at the beginning, to say, that, that was not my plan. I had really fallen in love with medicine, and I really wanted to do that. And so the problem is, is that, that that's not what God wanted him to do, so he didn't do it. So now he has a son who's 30 years old, and his son is right now leaving what he was doing to go to med school. And so his son, as my friend said, you know, it's funny— um, I, what's happening is is that he said what apparently what happened was is that that God said to me the same thing he said to David which was no it's not going to be you who's going to build the temple it's going to be your son he said so it's not going to be you going to med school it's going to be your son that goes to med school and, and it's interesting because within this last couple of weeks there's been actually multiple people who have retired like from pro football and who have said that they're going to go and commit themselves to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including a safety for the uh, Indianapolis Colts named Kari Willis. And so we need to always leave room for God to be able to redirect us at any given point in time. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be called to, to go and do, um, you know, to go to seminary or whatever. I mean, I had a good friend here in Asheville who was very wealthy. He had done very, very well in his life and sold his business and then started doing something else. And, and when he started doing that other thing, the Lord said to him, no, I, he was given money to send Bibles to China and to smuggle them in. And the Lord said, I, I don't want your money. I want you. And so he started smuggling Bibles into China. This was a very wealthy guy, I mean, worth millions and millions of dollars. And, and he, the Lord called him to go and do that. And so he started smuggling Bibles into China. He ended up, after that, going to work for Samaritan's Purse and all this kind of stuff. But, but the Lord continued to call him and continued to use him. I have a friend who was in his 80s who had lifelong servant of the Lord had been a Lutheran pastor and had served in multiple different kind of capacities outside the church, but in other kinds of ministries. And, and when he was in his 80s, he called me one day and he said, John, I just need to ask your prayers. And I said, for what? And he said, well, uh, the Lord is redirecting me. He's giving me this odd mission and odd ministry that I never saw coming. I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, I go to breakfast every day at, at different restaurants and stuff. And he said, he said, several times in the last little bit, the Lord has said to me, do you see that person over there? And, and yes, I see that person. He said, well, go tell Tell him this, or go ask him this. These are people he didn't even know. And so he started doing that. And, and every single time he felt the Lord was telling him to do this, he would go and speak to these people, and every single time it was right. And so we need to leave space in our lives always. We should never get too terribly comfortable 
with what we're doing and where we are, so comfortable that we can't leave it at a moment's notice if the Lord calls us to go there. And so here, Elijah's trying to push Elisha away from him, and here Jesus is trying to call people to him, and they won't come. In the, in the Galatians passage today, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he talking about in, in, in the context? What he's talking about is don't go back to the law. Don't go back and, and try and become Jewish. Don't go get circumcised. Don't take on the law and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. Jesus and the cross set you free from that. You have a way of dealing with sin now that you didn't have before. And, and little did Paul maybe know at this moment in time that the, the temple was going to be destroyed and that there wouldn't be any temple for him to go to to get rid of sin. And, and so he says, don't take all that on. No, no, take on the yoke of Christ, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He set you free from all that. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. You know that you have been forgiven, you have been restored, and you have been renewed in Christ, and that you are united with God in the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So don't be selfish. Don't live a self-centered life. In love, serve one another. So Paul says, reorient your life around service to one another and love for one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I've said this before, that, that Jesus said there, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? So the second, he said, is like unto it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why is that like unto the first one? It's like unto the first one because your neighbor is created in the image of God. And so when you love the one created in the image of God, you're also loving God. So it's like it because you're loving God and you're loving the ones who are image bearers. So Paul is, is saying, you know, you've been set free to do this. You've been set free to love one another. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, this infighting, and, and in Galatians, in context, it would be primarily the, the, those who have come in to Judaize the place, make them all obedient Jews, versus those who are preaching a gospel of freedom, a gospel of freedom in Jesus Christ that says, no, you don't have to take on the whole law. Jesus already did that. And his sacrifice for sin was once offered, and it was acceptable to God. And the proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So you don't have to worry about all that anymore. So the custom, the laws that regard the customs, the worship, the, all the, those kinds of things can be done away with. Now, the ethical demands of the law remain. There's nothing that's changed about the ethics of the law. And the proof of that is the Jerusalem Council in uh, Acts 15 says, here are the things you need to be aware of. You need to stay away from things sacrificed to idols. Why is that? Because those things have been offered to a demon, to something that, that claims the, the worth to be worshipped. And so you don't want to truck with that because it's contaminated by, by its offering to idols. You don't want to have, drink things or eat things with the blood in them or things that have been strangled, which would still have the blood in them. And why is that? It's because you take the life of the thing into yourself when you do that because the life of the thing is in the blood. And that's a basic teaching in Judaism. And so if you take animal blood into your life, then you're taking animal nature into yourself. Jesus says, no, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is to say take divine life into you. So that's prohibited still. 
And then the third thing that's prohibited is sexual promiscuity. There, there's a certain sexual ethic. The Bible says this is what it what the sexual ethics of the kingdom are. And the and the church, the early church, said, "Yep." That's it. So to the extent that we reject that and neglect that, then we're rejecting the apostolic teaching and the apostolic leadership. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that guy because I don't think that's a safe place for me to be to reject that teaching. So he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And, and, and he, he's speaking of that separation that can be there because, well, I'm a Jew and you're a Greek. It's the same thing that you see in the gospel when when James and John are ready to call down fire from heaven onto the Samaritans. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, which is exactly his argument in Romans 7, where he says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do are the very things that I do. So there's a war within us, the spirit and the flesh, and it's going to be true until the day we die. But we have to put to death the desires of the flesh in order to follow the spirit. He said these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, I have certainly had people who want to argue with me about this point, and it's the final use of the law is to guide us in understanding what spirit is telling us what to do. It doesn't mean that the law no longer matters. No, it means that the spirit will lead us into compliance with the law. But will know how to properly interpret the law, such like when Jesus, the disciples, were, were, were grinding the grain in their hand to separate the wheat from the kernel, and then they would eat the wheat, and the Pharisees said, wait, 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 that's work. You can't do that. And then they tried to tell Jesus, you can't heal on the Sabbath because that's work. And so the Spirit allows us to not only know the law, but to understand the law. God's not going to lead us out of conformity with his law. He's not going to lead you to have an affair with your neighbor's wife. He's not going to lead you to steal. He's not going to lead you to bear false witness. He's not going to do any of those things. So we can trust the Spirit to lead us into conformity with the law, but not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Look, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, look, I I can list these things forever and ever and ever, but everybody knows that's the work of the flesh. It has nothing to do with the Spirit. Come on. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, stay away from those things. I'm telling you, that's the work of the flesh. These are sinful things that take you away from Jesus. You're you're moving down a wrong road when you're doing these things. I talked to another friend this week who who used to have fits of anger, and they brought in they he took it so seriously. They brought in a guy to pray over him, and the guy was there for three days, and he said it was amazing. The stuff that happened while this guy prayed for him, he took that seriously enough and said, I don't want to be that guy who has fits of anger because it says that person won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I I admire that. I admire that greatly. That's a commitment that that most people are not willing to make. We we will kind of poo-poo some of these things, right? Dissensions and divisions. Oh, my gosh. Did you just describe the church? <laughs> so we got all these things. But, but my friend said, no, I, I, I did not want to be that guy because I was afraid that I was in danger of losing the kingdom. 
And Paul says, but the spirit, fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, who wouldn't want those things to be true of your life? He says, against such things there is no law. Not once did God ever say, don't do any of these things. And so Paul is very clear that there is a law behind the law. And that law is very clear. These things are self-evident. These are not okay. These are not uh, things that, that people in the kingdom of God do. People in the kingdom of God, he says, that they look like people who love. They have joy. They have peace. They have patience. They have kindness. They have goodness. They have faithfulness. They have gentleness. And they have self-control. Those are the contours of the life of a person living by the Spirit. Do those describe you? Do you want them to describe you? right? I mean, of course, who would not want those things? Is there a single thing there that anybody would find objectionable? And the answer is clearly no. So then what do we do? We pray, we meditate, we read the Word of God, and we ask Him to give us that, to show us the places in our lives that need to be dealt with so that we might follow Him more clearly that we might see him more often. And if we commit our lives to living according to the Spirit and leading of the Spirit, then we'll have the life we want. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So let the Spirit control your life. Give him control over your life, and you'll want all the right things. Your prayers will be answered more often because God says that, that I'll give you the desires of your heart. In that instance, if we commit ourselves to him, if we commit ourselves to his way, then then we will live lives that are truly blessed. We'll be able to give thanks in all things. We'll have peace in all things. No matter what happens, what comes into our lives, we will have peace. We will have joy. It can't be taken away from us if we live by the Spirit. We will be a different people if we do that. And, and what we have to do is day by day say, I want to follow you wherever you go. And I will never, ever stop following you, just like Elisha did to Elijah. I'm not going to stop. I will not give up, no matter what. I will continue to follow you wherever you go. And my face is set for your kingdom. In the same way, Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem.